Good morning, church. It's good to open the word with you this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, and we'll be actually all over Romans. So we'll just journey together as it, as it comes. But as you make your way to Romans chapter 1, verse 8, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to deliver us and free us from our sins and release us. And I pray for that effect this morning. I pray that every heart in this room would prepare him room. That by your spirit, this word would have its way in our hearts as your people. Lord, free us from our small ambitions. Help us think beyond ourselves this morning as a result of seeing how sufficient that the cross was enough. We just sang it. I pray that you would open our eyes to it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is an important season in our body life. If you're new to Brook Hills, I'm relatively new. This is my first time to be a part of the global offering as well. But every December for the last seven or eight years, Brook Hills has been a part of investing beyond the regular tithe and beyond other gifts, but directly investing in the global progress of the gospel through what we call our global offering in the month of December. And I can think of no other Uh, consideration for us as a people as more fitting after a series like Philippians. As Matt encouraged us so many times throughout the series, we stay low, we stick together. And this month is an opportunity for us to stretch further for our global reach of the gospel through our finances. And the gospel has that kind of expansive effect on our souls if, if it gets into our souls. The bold hope of the gospel awakens broad ambitions for the gospel. That's the one point I have for you today. You can pack pack up and go home if you want. Just kidding. Um, But that's it. The bold hope of the gospel produces and creates and awakens broad ambitions for the gospel. But I want you to consider how the opposite is also true. The shame that results from false hope shrinks our ambitions to the level of ourselves. Now our family has a Christmas tradition where we love watching the movie Elf over Christmas time. It's probably second on our list behind Nacho Libre. So that gives you a little uh, insight into our family. But I love that scene when Buddy, who's played by Will Ferrell, stays up all night decorating the department store because he knew Santa was coming. He's from the North Pole. He knows the real Santa. He can't wait. He, he sees the backside of Santa, runs over with the kids, and he's more excited than all the three- and four-year-olds that are waiting for Santa to come. He walks up to Santa. Wait a minute. You're not the real Santa. He says, kid, don't, don't tell him anything. He's a liar, right? Now you know what he says next. You sit on a throne of lies. Thank you. You sit on a throne of lies, and he sniffs him, and I love the next word, you smell like beef and cheese. <laughs> and then he punches him, right? And uh, I'm not going to draw out a ton from that illustration. Let's not put God anywhere in the category with Santa. But let's look at this one point, the disappointment that results when our hopes don't come through for us in the end. What happens when our hopes rest on a throne of lies? I think that's halfway, a halfway decent picture of what the Bible calls all throughout the fruit of idolatry. We will be disappointed if we make earthly substitutes for our God and value them above our God. We will always leave disappointed. And the fruit of that disappointment is sometimes it's anger, like Buddy, right? Sometimes we, we get mad that 
things didn't work out the way we wanted them to. But sometimes it, if it's more sensual in nature or, or more fleshly indulgent in, in its character, that we start a progression to get addicted. But notice how the circle around, how tight it is, that circle around both anger and addiction. So if you misplace your hope, that presents, that, that, that results in a somehow of your heart that you've got, you're disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. And that disappointment drives us inward. And we get angry or we have to keep going back to that well because it's broken. And so we get addicted and all these, these shameful habits result. But shame shrivels our ambitions to the point where all we can focus in is on ourselves. The disappointment of idolatry drives us inward. In Jeremiah 2, it says that God's people had gone after empty things and become empty themselves. That's the fruit of misplaced hope. But what if there is real hope that never disappoints? It has the exact opposite effect on the soul. True hope expands the soul so that love for others flows out. Hope forges mission. And that's why Romans was written. Romans is hardwired to deepen our assurance in the gospel so that we might be emboldened in our ambitions for the gospel. Now watch this dynamic at work in the Apostle Paul. He's probably around 60 years old. And look at how he talks about his mission. Now I want you to see his drive. It's going to be front and center, his drive. But I want you to take a step back as I read and look at the driving force of his life. And that is the gospel. Now look at Romans 1. I'll start reading in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at least last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you. Just as I've had among the rest of the Gentiles, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, that's his drive. Let's look at the driving force. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now let's turn over to chapter 11 with me. Verse 13, we're going to read. Paul continues to talk about his ministry and his drive, his passion. Verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. Now I'll turn over to chapter 15. Let's look at his aim, his ambition, how 
far it spread because of this gospel. Verse 20 of chapter 15. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. That is why I have been preventing many, prevented many times from coming to you, but now I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. The bold hope of the gospel awakens broad ambitions for the gospel. You can make your way back to chapter one. That's where we're gonna spend the bulk of our time. Gospel confidence creates a global compulsion. This is Paul, probably around 60, like I said earlier, at this time. And he has his sights on the edges of the known world, Spain, where Christ had yet to be named. And if we treasure the gospel similarly, our lives will take on global trajectories. Look in verse 15 and verse 16 at the connection between hope and mission. Verse 15, Paul is tells us he is eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Look in verse 16, that shows the connection to hope. Because, or for, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ produced a posture of bold confidence that propelled Paul outward into the world. Now, when Paul declares his boldness, he's not speaking from his, his personality. He even trembled in Corinth at the, the thought of the suffering that was coming his way because of declaring this gospel. The type of shame that he's talking about here is developed a lot in the prophets and particularly in a book like Isaiah. And it's the shame that results from misplaced hope, that your assumptions about the future prove false. It's like Buddy earlier in my illustration. Shame results when expectations aren't met, and your object of hope betrays you in the end. Now, we know all about that type of shame, high expectations and what? Low success. Some of you might have been worried that your football team last night was on the verge of, of doing that, falling that, to that b disappointment. But I, I'm new to the area, so I'm going to kind of stay out of that territory. I went to NC State. We just ceased having high expectations because we were tired of disappointment. So be thankful for your high expectations. But you sometimes see the shame when the home crowd boos their own team, right? And they hang their heads. They're just, they're tired of being disappointed play after play, year after year. That's not Paul in Romans about the gospel. He's not booing the gospel, what God has done in Jesus Christ. He's actually beaming about what God had accomplished in Christ. He wouldn't let anyone else boo the gospel either. The gospel raises expectations to eternal heights and delivers on its promise. That posture produced an eagerness to the world, a compulsion and mission because it was, it was unwavering in its confidence that it rendered Paul. He had to get to Rome so he could get to Spain where Christ had yet to be named. And I want to meditate together on two aspects of the gospel in Romans this morning, particularly how the gospel miracle forges the gospel mission. The gospel miracle, let's look at it together. Somehow sinners are saved through the cross. 
Somehow sinners are saved through the cross. Now what is it about the gospel that forges bold hope and broad ambition? Look in verse 16 again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, and he tells us why. Thankful for that because in the next word. Because it is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The first reason to boldly hope in the gospel is that it is the power of God. It's just, it is God's ability to save in word form through what he accomplished in Jesus It's news we hear that transforms our heart and delivers on its promise to take us all the way to heaven. Notice that Paul does not say the gospel reveals the power of God. It's not about the power of God. It is the very power of God. And that's what generated this unswerving confidence in Paul. The good news about Jesus Christ doesn't give sinners a chance to be saved. It saves them. Everyone who believes will be saved, Jew or Greek. Now, he says Greek there because it would be appropriate for his audience there in Rome. But what he means is all Gentiles, all peoples of non-Jewish background, everyone who comes to this Jesus will be saved. Now, a weak gospel would make for a shaky confidence and, and should produce a small ambition. If the God... If the, gospel told us about a God who might save you or who might win in the end, we would have every reason to just temper our hopes and hesitate in mission, right? But no, God is able to save sinners, all sinners who believe, regardless of their cultural background. Callie and I just talked to a field partner that we have that actually we supported through the global offering this past year. He lives in Nepal. He's been there many years. He told us about some, there are few Nepali believers, but they are enduring intense persecution during this season. Even the threat of martyrdom leads, it's weighing over them. And his, he quoted this verse. And these were his next words with this great resolve. Our victory is inevitable. That's it. If victory wasn't sure, run and hide, believers. Retreating would be totally appropriate. Save yourselves. No, this is the God who saves. The gospel is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. This persecution won't be their demise because their deliverance is sure. It's just a matter of time. Verse 17 unpacks the second reason for Paul's unwavering confidence Look what it says, read it with me. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The second aspect of the gospel that rendered Paul so boldly hoping in it and so unflinching in the resolve for the world was the righteousness of God displayed in it. And that's the second point on your outline there, the righteousness of God. And looking at the righteousness of God from our angle, it's God's inability to disappoint. I want to develop that with you. We don't talk about the righteousness of God all that much. This isn't a righteousness from God that some of your translation actually might translate it that way. I think our eyes are to look up at the righteous character of God. Paul's going to get to the imputed righteousness of Christ that's a glorious gift. Later in Romans and even later in this verse when he says the righteous will live by faith. But I think our eyes are to be fixed on the character of God. 
right now, his righteous character, who he is. What, I'm convinced that what enabled Paul to bank on the future faithfulness of God was his own righteous character. And I think the best way to understand God's righteousness is to think through two lenses. One is, think of God as both a, a husband, as a husband who has made a vow. He's given an obligation to a people and a judge who must uphold the law. If he betrays his promise to his people or violates justice, he would prove unrighteous and thus unworthy of hope. He would disappoint. And I would tell those believers in Nepal to run and hide. Save yourselves. But this justice part presents a big problem for all of the human race. If humanity was perfect, no problem. God simply honors his promise to bless the world by rewarding our righteousness. His hands are clean. Our hands are clean. It's a tidy process. It's done. But we're not righteous. And Paul dives right into that problem, that tension, right into it in verse 18, right after this verse. And it starts with four, which means it flows from this good news that rendered Paul so unashamed. So what's... How does this interact with one another? Let's read verse 18 and see our problem. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you see that word all? God's righteousness as judge constrains his wrath against all. All unrighteousness, all the myriad of ways we suppress him as the human race. He can't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't play favorites. He righteously distributes his wrath on all the myriad of ways we are unrighteous in the world. He doesn't grade on a curve. His wrath's not like the Incredible Hulk. His rage is uncontrollable, right? He isn't flying off the handle. His wrath is appropriately, and, and what is due sinners in their exchange of him for some idol, he gives them exactly what is due them. And this is really, really bad news. But I'm going to show you how this bad news has a silver lining. Think about this, though. Enter into the tension with your own whole soul. Romans 1 through 3 is in, intended to induce a measure of despair in our hearts. God's righteousness demands his just judgment of everyone, or he would no longer be righteous. You, me, everyone who has belittled God in his or her heart. If God were not to judge that, he'd be saying, it's not a big deal. I'm not that worthy. And that's not our God. He can't overlook our sin forever. He would deny himself if he were to not punish our rebellion. His righteousness is on the line if we walk free permanently. Now, if, you, if you're reading that with an honest heart, because this is honest, one writer said, this is the honest love of God that speaks truthfully. That kind of hopeless situation reminded me of a story I heard back when I was in Central Asia from a teammate. She knew of a lady, her name was Joan Murray. She's a banker in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I didn't believe this story the first time I heard it, and I don't think you will either, but I'll save you a step. Because what do we do when we don't believe something in our day? We Google it. So I Googled it. It's true. Uh, this really happened. On September 25th, 1999, Joan jumped out of a train, uh, a train, a plane, which she had done over 30 times before. But this time something went wrong. Her parachute didn't open. 
There she was descending at a rate of over 85 miles an hour from 14,500 feet. And her parachute was stuck. And she was struggling to cut away her primary chute so she could release her secondary chute. And at about 700 feet, she was able to free her first chute, cut it away so that her second chute deployed. But by that time, she was spinning from the struggle so fast that, that it didn't have enough time to break her fall. And so she landed on the ground and made a crater in the ground. Some think she landed at over 80 miles an hour. Now, that should have been her last moment on earth, but somehow Joan would survive. And I'll tell you why in a minute, but I want you to pause there for a minute. Can you imagine if you were Joan? Can you imagine the despair of that descent? You probably wouldn't have time to process it all, but certain death awaited you when you hit the ground. The ground was coming. That's exactly what this section from Romans 1 all the way to 320 is designed to do. It's almost as if the whole human race is in, the, is in midair, descending over a gaping chasm, the eternal wrath of God, and justly so. We're descending over it. And the parachutes we deploy, Paul says in Romans 1, the parachute of rebellion. We think we can run and hide from this God. It doesn't work. Because the footprint of his judgment is already at work in our rebellion. And we make a mess of our own lives. And that shows us that it's going to end in shame in the end. It's going to betray us in the end. Then he speaks to another group of people in Romans chapter 2 that that the Jewish people who had a hope from God that they, they they trusted in these signs of favor from him. So it's almost like they get their secondary shoot out and and enables their fall to be a little slower. God's patience was at work in their life. But then they look up at their shoot and it's dry rotted. It's ripping to shreds because their hypocrisy testifies against them. That their religion didn't change their heart and shows that they, their own hope, their object of hope will betray them in the end and it will end in their shame. And so I don't know if you guys saw the Egg Bowl uh, a few weeks ago. or Maybe it was last weekend, but the, there was a fight in the game, Ole Miss, Mississippi State. And I've never seen a, a, a head official do this, but he got on the microphone. He turned on his microphone. He put his arms out and he said, unsportsmanlike conduct on all players on both teams. <laughs> And that's the moment we get to in Romans 3, 19 and 20. Let's look at that. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know, so this is the, somebody's about to turn on the microphone. The law is about to turn on the microphone. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. So Israel. So that every mouth may be shut and the whole world, Jew, Gentile, may become subject to God's judgment. So the law steps into the courtroom of heaven. We're no longer into, in a game setting. We're in the courtroom of heaven, and the law turns on its microphone and it says, unrighteous conduct, Jews, Gentiles. And we, there we are, defenseless and deserving before the wrath of God. And it's like I can imagine the human race just huddling up, closing our eyes, kind of like Joan if she would have thought about it for a minute, and just awaiting our impending doom We wait, and Paul keeps writing in 321, but now, but now. You see, this same God who 
demands and constrains himself to judge our unrighteousness also made a promise. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God graciously promised to bless a people and through them to bless the world. His righteousness also constrains his faithfulness to that word. How will God honor justice and keep his word? How will he bless a guilty people? Now be careful. This is not a dilemma we as sinners can create for God. He's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Don't mistake this. This is God seeing this dilemma beforehand and gladly resolving to to answer this question on behalf of the human race. But enter into the tension. How will he not bend the rules and prove himself unrighteousness or unrighteous? Or how will he not break his vow? How will he prove himself righteous? Now, let's go back to Joan's story. Remember, 80 miles an hour. 14,500 feet. When she made impact, she happened to land on a mound of fire ants. The fire ants immediately went to town. They went into defensive mode and began biting her all over. I don't know the science of all this. You can ask Scott James. But her body was flooded with adrenaline from all the bites, which kept her organs working and actually sent her body into coma, which ended up saving her life. So fire ants saved Joan's life. Somehow, in a complete reversal of expectation, Joan lives. She even jumped out of a plane a little bit later after a lot of surgeries from the fall. But the shock of that somehow Joan lived is is similar to the but now in 321. Somehow the story continues. Look in 321. There we are, ashamed of ourselves, awaiting our judgment. And Paul says, but now. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. So if God is to prove himself a loyal husband, this is what the Old Testament said he would do. The law and the prophets testify that he would send a Savior, and he's done it in Jesus Christ. He's proved himself a loyal husband. There it is. His faithfulness is on display in this good news. Now let's keep reading. Let's see about his justice. Look in verse 22. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I can remember family devotions one night when I got to this point, and I remember one of my sons, he got here. and I read these next two words. He said, why would he do that? Verse 25, God presented him, who's him? Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Our somehow is right in that word, atoning sacrifice. There we are, all of our man-made parachutes failing us, awaiting the disappointment and shame of eternal judgment. And somehow we, we hit the ground and we keep walking. Because our somehow as Christians is the, that word sacrifice of atonement or atoning sacrifice. Some translations might have propitiation at the cross of Jesus, the illogical unexpected outcome happens. Somehow, God punished his son in our place, undeserving as he was. He presented him in our place and proved his faithfulness by sending him in the first place. 
Atoning sacrifice. It means Jesus absorbed the full measure of the wrath of God due us. All of it. Not some of it. If it was some of it, you'd have every reason to be anxious this morning as a Christian. But this is the silver lining in all the bad news in Romans 1 through 3. The righteousness that constrains God's exacting judgment against hope and ruins hope resurrects it at the cross. There we should be descending and God embraces the cost of judgment and loyalty. This is on your notes. Somehow, and get this, God's righteousness is revealed. Not in condemning sinners like you and me. Or in condoning sin to honor his promise. But in saving sinners through the cross. God embraced the pain of his promise and paid the penalty his justice demanded at the cross. The cross is what rendered Paul so unashamed of this confidence he had in the gospel. The cross is what gave Paul that assurance that when he banked on Jesus, God would not turn his back on him. He would not disappoint. God is righteous in declaring us righteous. If you're not a believer this morning, I just want to encourage you. This is the good news of the gospel. You want this God. You want this God. In a world of corruption and broken promises, you want a God who won't break the rules to save you. If he broke the rules to save you, why would you think he wouldn't break his vow to keep you? You don't want to hope in a God who might grade on a curve. That creates a lot of anxiousness. Amen, students in the around this world room? You want a judge who will look at your sin as ugly as it is and see it as it is and pay the penalty in full. You want a husband whose word is not flimsy but sturdy. He sticks to his oath even when it hurts. Only a God, now listen to this. This is the silver lining in Romans 1 through 3. Only a God who can be holy against you in your sin can be holy for you in Jesus. Do you get it? That's the connection between verse 17 and verse 18. For those of you in this room who are Christians and banking on that gospel, your hope will not betray you in the end. I'm from a small town in North Carolina called Roxboro. The mayor of our town, it turns out, had lied for years about what was on his resume. And for some reason, someone looked into his resume years after he had been in office and found out that the diploma on his wall and what he wrote down on his resume was all a lie. He never went to the university he said he went to. He never graduated. He's disqualified from that office. I want you to think about the gospel. Is it worthy of your hope? Think on its resume this morning. God's faithfulness is upheld by the coming of Jesus. Justice is satisfied by the blood of Jesus. Grace is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Everyone who believes on Jesus will never be disappointed. He who stood against us now stands for us and unreservedly, undoubtedly so. The cross proves the extent of his integrity. This is why the righteousness of God forges bold hope. We sing that great song that the team wrote, that blood bought by his cross clean. I want you to see that God's reliability this morning is blood bought. He is utterly reliable. Think of how the Avengers approach Hulk. 
They know he's kind of on their team, but when he turns green, they don't know what's going to happen, right? Even Black Widow, I don't know what she does to his palm, but she tries to calm him down. She has some special connection with him. But you never know if what? Hulk smash, right? When he turns green, it's totally unsettling to the whole team. This is what we're not hoping in a Hulk in Romans 1 through 3. It's not just that we've been declared righteous and have some connection to this God. We've been declared righteous with a righteous God. That is what forges bold hope. We won't ever regret banking on him. His righteousness is guaranteed. We will not be disappointed. He doesn't turn green. He's altogether trustworthy. And we tremble not out of fear for our safety, but out of all of his beautiful majesty of his unswerving commitment to us when we should have never been in that place in the first place, out of his terrible and terrifying in one sense, but trustworthy mercy. God proves himself able and reliable in the gospel. He is our deepest need, and we've seen in Romans 1 through 3 that he's our biggest threat, but he becomes our biggest treasure through what he did at the cross for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? God's righteousness renders us unashamed of the gospel. We are safe. A people who feel no threat from heaven are thrust into earth for mission. We can give our lives away for others. You know what that means? This kind of hope means we don't have to worry about ourselves. We get the privilege of worrying about others. Would they be saved? How how in the world? Somehow I got in on this, God. Can't they too? That's how this gospel forges mission. That's how the the shocking somehow of Joan's story, the shocking somehow of our story with a righteous God produces this stubborn somehow of mission in the world. And that's what Paul is talking about all through the, the book of Romans. The bold hope of the gospel forges and awakens broad ambitions for the gospel. The gospel miracle creates the gospel mission. Let's look at the gospel mission. Somehow the nations must be saved. Somehow we got in on this by no merit of our own. Has grace ever tasted so sweet in those first moments you believed? Somehow we got in on no merit of our own. So we turn to the world that's still not in, and we say, come on in. Come on in. The somehow of the cross found an echo in Paul's somehow of mission. And Romans is writing to, written to drive that somehow, the shocking somehow of the cross, to drive it into its expression, into its global expression of that somehow of mission. Somehow they got to get in. We say a lot around here that we are all in for all nations. We could be all in for a lot of things. I even saw that all in on a napkin this week. All in to drink a drink is what it said. And it's like, no, we're not all in to drink a drink. We're not all in to be satisfied ourselves. We're not all in for relief or humanitarian uh, measures and, and good things in the world. We are all in to get this gospel to all nations Because this is the only news that solves humanity's deepest need. Paul knew that, so he stretched his ambitions all the way across the known world at the time almost. He uses the word somehow, and I put it in your notes so you could see it clearly, in Romans 1.10 to express his resolve 
to get to Rome. He was stubbornly committed to getting to Rome. I imagine him, a 60-year-old man, he's like a three-year-old in the back of your car. You've been on a long car ride. What does that three-year-old keep saying? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Paul's saying, God, Rome, Spain, Rome, Spain, Rome, Spain. He's stubbornly committed to getting this gospel to Rome and then beyond Rome to the edges where it had not reached yet. The same word for somehow is used in Romans 11, 13 and 14. I put it down there. And he speaks here of his heart for his own people to be saved that were without Christ at that time. He wanted to, to stir up a sense of jealousy through his ministry among his people. And notice how he personalizes it. If somehow I might save some of them. Look at his resolve to save his people. That's borderline heretical. I might save some of them. He personalizes his obligation to that degree. Somehow, i got to save them. Somehow. It's almost as if this, this sense, as far as Paul was concerned, no one would perish without going through him. Uh-uh. My fellow brethren, you're not going to hell without me. Without me telling you about this good news. Somehow, i got to save some of them. Somehow, i got to get that news. I'm thinking, I'm dreaming, I'm praying. Jealousy. Where would you pick jealousy from? <laughs> somehow is, is not by, our somehow is not driven by any means possible, but by any biblical means possible. You see, Paul was a man of the book. Deuteronomy 32 said that God would have mercy on his people by, by having create a sense of jealousy in their hearts for what the Gentiles were enduring. And so Paul says, okay, God, you promised to do that. I'm committed to it. It doesn't make so much sense on paper, but jealousy, I'll go. Okay. Romans 15, he says, I'm going to Spain. And what are his marching orders? Who dictates his travel plans? It's Isaiah 52, 15. It says, they who had no news of him shall hear, and they who had no news of him shall, shall see. I got that a little wrong. I got that a little confused, but you can read it later. Um, but that was dictating his travel plan. So his somehow was by any biblical means possible, he was going to get the word out to the nations. And that's the best Pauline-type missionary, one who's pouring over this book and pouring his life out for the nations that have not heard. And he wanted to impart that sense of somehow into that church in Rome. And God wants to impart that sense of somehow into us this morning. Now, the somehow of missions has three expressions in Romans. The first is anguish over global lostness. That's on your outline there, the anguish over global lostness. Paul says in Romans 9 that he has unceasing grief and anguish in his soul for his lost countrymen that were perishing without Christ. You see what the righteous God enabled him to do? He was freed from anxiety over his own soul so that he could bring other soul to God in prayer. His heart hurt that people were still perishing when the remedy was so readily available. John Piper said there's, there's a sense of when you realize the sovereign grace and mercy of God, there's a weeping wonder of why me that it creates. A weeping wonder of how did I get in on this? I also think Paul embodies a different dynamic as well, that there's the weeping wailing of why not them? <laughs> Weeping, wailing, who are we going to sow our tears over? What people group are we going to sow our tears over in 2019? I can remember one sinner's prayer in my time in Central Asia that I will never forget. We had the opportunity of seeing some people come to Christ and they confess their sins and, and were claimed to be Christ people there. And that was glorious experiences, but one stood out. And it was the unanswered prayer that I heard. 
a man named Turgai, his wife was sick and we befriended him and we were praying for his wife, met with him before we left for one of our statesides and prayed with him for her, for her healing, that she would be saved and never got to share with her. And so I got back from stateside, five months stateside. First person I want to see is Turgai. And I, I check, I, we do our pleasantries and then I immediately ask about his wife and he kind of gets this somber look. It was very obvious that she had passed. And he looks up to heaven and he says, Allah, please forgive her sins. I was walking to the market with my son Owen and I expressed my grief to him and I remember just wanting to buckle under the weight of that moment. I had never heard someone reach out for mercy so closely and I knew it wouldn't be answered. There's no salvation outside of Jesus. He's the only remedy for the world. The second expression of somehow is ambition to to reach the edges of global lostness. Ambition to reach the edges of global lostness. There's a broadness to Paul's ambition that he wants the church at Rome to catch and God wants us to catch it this morning. Where Christ had yet to be named was simply an intolerable concept for Paul. Spain filled his planner. If he had a Trello board, he'd had notifications turned on every day. Spain, got to get there, got to go. He was tenacious. There was only one non-negotiable for the Apostle Paul, and that was this, that we keep this news to ourselves. Woe is me if I do not preach this gospel. I have a list on my phone somehow. And I put their names from Central Asia, but now I have a somehow Birmingham. Somehow the lost people I meet, whether it be at the market or in our neighborhood, they go on that list. I want to pray for them. I want to check them off. I want to make sure they've heard. Somehow i got to save some of them if, if we're using Paul's language from Romans chapter 11. And back in July, we commissioned John and Molly to the Middle East. Now, John's uh, an accountant. And when his accounting firm said there's an opening in the Middle East, John was the first to raise his hand because he had this kind of somehow impulse at the work in his heart. And I bought his car before he left. And the, delay he, the day he delivered it to me, the, the back seat was filled with Bibles. And they weren't just Bibles in English. They were Bibles in Turkish and Arabic and Spanish. Because John knew that when he was out in his car, he had to be ready to give this word to the world that was waiting, the world that needed it. Because somehow he had to get this gospel out. The second week before they left, I saw Molly. She's pushing one of those red carts full of nine screaming kids down the hallway because somehow these kids have got to get it. Somehow the nations have got to get it. Somehow Birmingham has to get it. They get this dynamic at work in his heart. Molly right now is learning Arabic. She doesn't have to, but something inside her tells her she has to. This gospel has to get out. The gospel miracle creates the gospel mission. I don't know where you stood and we just voted over the building. But I just have a vision for those red carts. That whether they're in a new building or on this old hall. I don't know how the Lord led us this morning. We'll see this afternoon. But that we just build up above enough momentum. I mean, the other day we were in a small group over here in the modulars and somebody had the bold ambition to go out there and he was running with kids around with your kids. They're safe, no way. They're, about, they're buckled in. Uh, and we could hear him coming. And whether we're in that new building or whether we're on this old hall, I, I just pray the nations hear us coming. There's a future generation of laborers coming out of Brook Hills to engage the nations. And they're coming. They might not be in that red cart, but they're coming. They're coming. And the last way this 
somehow expresses itself in Romans is through assistance. Some of us need to get our names on a one-way ticket to the Spains of our day. Some of us need to get our names on that ticket. Some of us, like Paul was requesting from Rome, need to pay for that ticket. Some of us need to pack our bags. Some of us need to fill those bags with things like Reese's because you can't get those all over the globe. I speak from experience. That's, if this somehow takes root in our lives because it's gonna change the way we spend our money. This somehow of mission forged by the gospel miracle changes the way we spend our money. It's now for the world, not for ourselves. And many of you back last year in December of 2017 or even before that in 2017, you gave to the global offering. Some of you dug deep. So your money would be used for broader gospel-centered goals beyond yourselves. Many of you, and I think of the kids' stories that I've heard in this room that invested in the global advancement of the gospel. Many of you dug deep. In this season where our culture focuses so much on spending for ourselves, you said this, because the gospel's at work in your heart, you said, I'm gonna be spent for others. I'm gonna be spent for others. And we want you to see, get a little taste of how your money was used this past year as we consider how to give for 2019. Short-term tri- mission trips, they're, they're kind of the warp and woof of, of what we're doing here in Brook Hills. They're often used by God to be that first exposure to people of the global need of the gospel. And then people are funneled to be Pauline-like long-termers in our language that engage the nations for all their lives or for bigger stints than just two years. And in 2018, I want you to see how your above and beyond giving to the global offering was able to scholarship many short-term trips to go out through various segments of of the population here represented at Brook Hills. In 2018 alone, 28 college students received the discounted trips. We're trying to smooth the runway for these people to get overseas. 100 students, high schoolers, middle schoolers, received discounted trips. 23 families benefited from your giving. Beyond that, 31 midtermers, people who make a commitment anywhere from two weeks to two years to spread this gospel among the nations, were unleashed to the world because you opened your pockets and supported their efforts. 12 long-term families, people who make commitments over two years have been supported in 2018 through the offering. We wanna regularly feel that sting of gospel goodbyes as as a church. It hurts. I know that vacancy some of you family members feel in your heart. You just had it over Thanksgiving, Christmas. You want people around. Even the empty seats in this, this room could be filled by people that your money was used to send out, and we miss them. But there's a comfort in that sting of gospel goodbyes. And you know what the comfort is? One day around the throne, the lamb who is worthy, there will not be a seat empty So we give up our empty seats today for those whom we've sent out so that they might be there then, around the throne, ascribing the lamb who was slain all the worth he deserves. As a church, we particularly feel the burden in our world for the the spains of our day, where the gospel has yet to be 
proclaimed. The unreached people groups of the world and the global ministry team that stewards the finances you give through the global offering particularly leans in. If you knew these brothers and sisters, you would see them lean in to unreached peoples. And we, we discern if the Lord's leading those funds to go to different partners around the world. And I want you to see just a, a global scale of how your money was used to bless the world, particularly the unreached this past year. In India, your investment in a leadership development program fueled three teams of two people each to be sent out as midtermers among their own people to reach the unreached of India. Other believers and pastors in India received training for EV efforts in their communities, particularly among Muslims who are their neighbors because of the funding they receive through global offerings. In the northern section of Vietnam, it's going to light up on the screen there. There are many unreached people groups that still remain in that area. And we were able to pay for training for 12 church planners so that they could go back to their villages and share the gospel more clearly and faithfully. And think of this. Two to three previously unengaged people groups with the good news were engaged with the gospel in 2018 because of your giving. They've never heard it. And they heard it this past year. In Thailand, some Brook Hills long-termers have been involved in a training program that equips believers on how to disciple other believers. And those believers that have been discipled are, have been sent out to Myanmar and Laos and Cambodia to share the good news. And the funding for those trips and that training came from your pockets. In Nepal, 15 biblical training programs through the Footstool Project were funded this past year. Even a Bible college that used to be at the kind of center of the strategic initiative to engage these people groups in the Himalayas was devastated in 2015 by an earthquake. That Bible college was able to be reopened because Brook Hills members and, and attenders gave last year to the global offering. And now it's a hub again of activity among those unreached people groups. And one of the stands that shall not be named, um, you know, Harry Potter sort of... Uh, a, a leadership institute was able to continue to encourage upper-level upper leaders in this country with good leadership principles, but in an indirect fashion was sustaining an underground movement of churches in that country. Three efforts to spread the gospel among Iranians and Malay were funded. SD cards filled with this book in their language were given out at a New Year's festival in Istanbul, Turkey. Hundreds of them went out to Iranians and were brought back into the country so that they could read the word of God without fear of persecution. Believers from Indonesia were equipped and empowered to be sent out ones among the Malay of Malaysia. Can you believe that? This somehow ethic is, is, is evidencing itself. Even in believers from Indonesia, we were able to fuel that, give assistance to that through your giving. One great resource, What is the Gospel? A book that we encourage you to read was translated into Malay from your giving this past year. And beyond these avenues of direct sending and equipping, your funds have been used to help strategic partners who empower local churches all across the globe. Ministries you might know of, like Never Thirst, who do work in Cambodia because of your giving. 
one way, proclaims the gospel through short-term trips in Slovenia and Guatemala. Their efforts were funded through your giving. Lifeline, a ministry who, who, that, presents, that just meets so many needs of orphans all across the globe. They, they did many efforts across the globe because of your giving. In Liberia, I'll just tell you about one of them. They run a camp that helps orphaned kids who are reaching that threshold where they probably won't be adopted they, they hold a camp that equips them with life skills so that they can benefit their communities and, and bless their communities, but also make a living for themselves. And so some orphans learned how to build a roof at their camp this past year because of your funding. And they went home to their orphanage where they grew up and they built a roof for their orphanage because of your giving. Even ministry partners that are designed to, to meet pressing needs when crisis hits, like the the tsunami in Indonesia were able to be strengthened because of your giving. Or, or the Hurricane Florence in North Carolina, we were able to come alongside some ministry partners there and, and bless their work this past year. I don't even have time to mention all the other countries that you impacted. But from Birmingham to all the way all over the globe, this is the global footprint of your giving this past year. Let's just give God glory for that. I want to leave you with one more map. And this is the map of the state of the Spains of our day. This is where, by density, unreached people groups still remain, by and large. The darker the color, the more inaccessible the gospel. That was simply intolerable for Paul, and may it be intolerable for us. Somehow, that can't be. I can't think of any other way to use our resources, to stretch ourselves, than to change the shades on that map. Back in 2015, I don't know if you remember the story, but an Ebola outbreak happened in Africa, and the world watched anxiously as it was spreading from country to country. And when the epidemic started, some doctors around the world actually had a version of the vaccine they used to treat other outbreaks before. But they waited to send it in because they needed to do the due diligence to see if it was a sufficient vaccine to address this current outbreak's need. And so they hesitated. And over 11,000 people by the end of the outbreak ended up perishing in Africa during those days. But think about this, the potential shame over the antidote caused them to be hesitant to send it in to meet the urgent need. The possibility of it not working, they were doing the good, what a good doctor would do. He wants to make sure it's a, a credible, worthy solution for the desperate need that they were facing in that day. I want to encourage us as a church, brothers and sisters, what ails the world is clear this morning. It's sin and death. God's remedy to meet that need is equally clear. Uncertainty has been removed from this solution by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is no room for hesitation, only ambition. We will not be disappointed. We will not be denied. The good news of Jesus Christ, listen to this, isn't one remedy among many in the world. It's the only remedy. Remedy for what plagues the world. 
Do you sense the magnitude of the miracle and the mandate of the mention? Somehow God saves sinners like you and me through Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's what our global offering in our church is all about. We want to do good in the world. but We have to. It's a non-negotiable for us. We have to get this good news to the world. Somehow they must be saved.